Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. For years, Sarah Longwell was known in Washington public affairs and Republican circles as a savvy, research-driven consultant who knew how to win tough campaigns. She, for years, led the Log Cabin Republicans, an organization that advocates for LBGT rights. But then came Donald Trump whose raucous approach to politics and issues clashed with her own idea of conservatism. She wouldn't support him in 2016, openly worked for his impeachment in 2019, and organized a sophisticated campaign to influence swing voters and help defeat Trump in 2020. Now, Sarah Longwell publishes The Bulwark, a lively, independent online site with commentary and analysis from fellow center-right apostates. She also hosts a terrific podcast called The Focus Group, And best of all, this spring, Sarah is a Pritzker Fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. We sat down to talk this week, and here's our conversation. Sarah Longwell, it's really great to see you. Uh, And I, I am such a huge fan of your podcast, The Focus Group, which comes from Bulwark, which you also run. Also, so pleased to have you as a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago this quarter. So we got plenty to talk about. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast and, uh, you know, you You in general. You don't have to say that just because I said it. I mean, this is. (laughs) (laughs) I got to tell you, I do. uh, I do really like Hacks on Tap. uh, Yes. This podcast, too. But the Hacks on Tap, you and Mike Murphy. Yes. You know, I, I love a good cross-partisan Well, the good thing about that podcast is, you know, Mike was a very withdrawn guy. Yeah. Sort of dem- and I think I've really brought him out. I think I've drawn him out, which, you know, to me is like a, a service to him and as well as the world. So I feel good about that. He's no longer the shy, retiring guy you knew. That's true. So. I, I've, I've met him. He is, uh, <laughs> you've, you've done, you've done a really great job there. <laughs> but before we talk about, I want to talk a, a bunch of politics with you because this is such a fascinating and in some ways terrifying time. But, uh, first I want to talk about Dillsburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Yes. Dillsburg, Pennsylvania, which is the metropolis. I, I got, uh, I, you know, I get notes before these podcasts and this note said, she she grew up just outside of Dillsburg, Pennsylvania. So I wanted to see, well, if this is like a suburb of Dillsburg, how big is Dillsburg? And Dillsburg is like 3,000 people. So I, I hate to get into the semantics of central Pennsylvania. And your researcher, I know exactly where they got this because I remember they got it from the New Yorker profile uh, that Susan Glasser did a couple years back. But I actually grew up in Perry County, Pennsylvania. Uh but my parents and then we moved to Dillsburg like this is more detail than you need about my life. But I, I it is actually important to me that my origin story begin <laughs> in Perry County, which uh, in, a, in the even even tinier 
uh, not at all metropolis of Millerstown, Pennsylvania, which is a town of 800 people uh, that had no McDonald's. And uh, one time they put up a stoplight because they were doing construction on a bridge and the whole town had an ice cream party when the stoplight <laughs> came down because well, it was very, that. that's very important to our town to not have a stoplight. But, uh, you know, Susan, to her credit, didn't want to get into all of that backstory. I see. I thought you were dumping on the fact checkers at the New Yorker. You know, they take that stuff pretty seriously. They took it very seriously. Yes, yes, yes. But uh, And your folks were lawyers. They were. They were both lawyers. And in fact, at the little t- tiny town square, there's a two-aisle grocery store in Millerstown. And there was a uh, one, I think, insurance agent and then Longwell and Longwell Law Offices, which were my parents. And my mom had her office in the house and my dad had his office down on the square, and uh, yeah, they were both the town attorneys. And is that what principally what they have? I mean, what kind of law did they practice? Yeah, so my dad did kind of contracts, like stuff for people around town. Um, mm-hmm. But my mom actually was ended up as one of the she was a partner one of the largest law firms in Pennsylvania, um, and did sort of health related stuff. And were they politically active? I mean, was politics a big thing thing in your house? You know, it's not that they were active. Like, it wasn't like they went to um, rallies or meetings or things like that. It was more that they were incredibly interested. They were um, huge readers, uh, both of and and consumers of news and of and of just. I, I think this is one of the things. Even when I go home now, there's just so many books uh, in my house, and my parents are always always reading, and so um, and the news was always on. Just always, you know how you go into some people's houses and the news is just, it's like you're in a, uh, an airport, (laughs) like the news is just always on from room to room. That's what it was like. And so it was just kind of politics and ideas and that kind of, that was in the air. I remember there was, you know, weekly standards would just be stacked up on the, on the table. Um, and, and just voracious readers. Your buddy, Bill Crystal would be happy to hear that. That is, it is, it is quite remarkable to me uh, after all those years of seeing weekly standards lying around the house to, to have Bill uh, as one of my friends. And partners in, I don't want to say crime because people take it seriously, but partners in the endeavor of trying to bring about a better kind of politics, I guess is the way to just, the the best way to describe it. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So you, uh, and were they, I mean, this must've been a pretty Republican area, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. I mean, I grew up in this really one of the reasons that it sort of matters to me to talk about Millerstown and the place that I grew up is that, um, you know, this was a a white, very rural part of Pennsylvania, Um, you know, grew up just a small town living, loving the local basketball games. And that was our social event. And, um, you know, going to church and and then, uh, you know, the 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 move we, we moved when I was in high school. And it was because I, I ended up going to a private school for high school that was um, in Harrisburg. And um, now we're at a bustling metropolis of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Yes. Um, but, but going to that, that, that made a huge difference in my life. Um, but one of the things that happened was going to one of these kind of very liberal uh, private schools in the city was like a super culture clash for me. Uh, just a toll. And I had these the, everybody was a doctor, right? So my English teacher, my history teacher, suddenly they were Dr. Jones. Wow. And, and they were, you know, serious people, but also uh, they talked about politics. And so there was a bit of me as a young person coming into my own around ideas who loved politics and loved to talk about it in my house and um, who both loved these people who wanted to engage at a high level at ideas and who really pushed me, but also all my sort of stubborn 
my I honed a lot of my early conservatism in contrast to a number of the things that I felt like they were telling me um, in a way that that I found productive and jovial and um, and where there was a lot of affection. So so the school was the school is pretty liberal is what you're saying. And you and you were kind of the contrarian. That's right. I was the country kid who wanted to fight for a different set of values than a lot of my classmates. And that was to continued in college because you went to Kenyon College, which is a small liberal arts college in Ohio, which I assume was mostly a, a liberal bastion as well. Is that is that fair? It was, although um, I did find the political science department there, which is actually when I was there, this is now going 20 years ago, I'm about to have my 20th reunion at Kenyon, but a bunch of um, Straussians out of the University of Chicago. Yeah. And so the political science department, I I mean, conservative would not be the right term, um, but I think that it was maybe not uh, the same kind of intellectual environment that you might have found on the rest of campus. So you said you've said you were quoted somewhere. Maybe it was in that New Yorker piece uh, as saying, "I knew I was conservative before I knew I was gay." What made you a uh, What made you a conservative? What was it that drew you to conservatism? A lot of it was, or at least some of it was, cultural. Um, but I, but I, and and that contrast that I talked about as as I started to get into more and more sort of progressive academic situations and wanting to to push back on some of that. But a lot of it was. It was really basic stuff. You know, when you're young, it is things like personal responsibility made sense to me <laughs> and that one should be accountable for one's actions. And I got to tell you, I was 18 when Bill Clinton was impeached. And mm-hmm. so you got to understand that I came to political consciousness at a time when, you know, the president of the United States was like dirtbagging around with his intern, abusing his power and then lied about it. And Republicans were the ones standing up and saying, this is wrong. And they were so at the time character counted. It was so at the center of who they were as a political uh, institution. And I thought that, you know, the feminist groups kind of giving Bill Clinton a pass was wrong. You know, all of that stuff struck me as very hypocritical. And so I would say I, I kind of went into my political years with that as my frame. The biggest thing that I had known was Bill Clinton and his affair and his lying about it and the way that the political establishment uh, on the Democratic side defended it. And I thought all of that was wrong. And I would say that that influenced a lot of it. But a lot of it was just like, you know, had I said I just had a real libertarian stubborn streak, you know, government can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do, which I maintain to this day to some degree. Yeah. The interesting thing about the time and, and I listen, Clinton's behavior was appalling and uh, there's no question about that. But, you know, you had Gingrich was the Speaker of the House. He had to go. Livingston, I think, was the guy who followed him. He had to leave because of his own exploits. Those things got less attention, but this was an equal opportunity kind of thing. Not as, not as spectacular in the nature of it as what we saw, you know, in the in the case of Clinton. But I don't know why I felt like I had to. In- <laughs> well, it's actually, it's interesting that you do that because I got to say, I was probably into my early professional development before I started seeing both sides. Um, I, 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 I mean, and I'm not saying you're both sides in it right now, but I, I do think that um, you got to think about the media environment back then. And as an 18 year old who's like, you know, oh, interested 100%, in politics, oh, I'm not reading deep on everything. Like that was all I heard. And so it, it took a while to sort of see the, the whole, the whole picture and to see that the hypocrisy, there was plenty, there's plenty to go around in politics. Yeah. Yeah. But listen, I'm not both sizing it more than pointing out that, uh, those kinds of 
transgressions and sort of liberties uh, were, uh, you know, the province of power generally. Mm -hmm. uh, they were most, uh, you know, they were most on display uh, when the president of the United States engaged in it. Uh, and you're right. I think there was a lot of hypocrisy on the part of Democrats, uh, you know, looking back. And I think a lot of people look back at them and say, gee, we probably should have been a little more circumspect about. But let's leave that aside because I want to get back to your story. Uh, you went on to something called the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which was really about trying to get conservative viewpoints on campus. And you spent a few years doing that. Yeah. So I, when I was at Kenyon, uh, I wrote for the conservative campus paper. Um, I was also, I played, played much, played sports, played field hockey and mm, softball. And, but I, I did write for the campus paper and that we was. Let me ask you, hold on, hold yeah. it for a second. Let me just ask you this. Was writing always something that you enjoyed doing? Was writing something that came easily to you? Yeah, I actually went to Kenyon because I thought I was going to be a writer. Just going back to my parents' house where like the books are everywhere. They're piled yes, yes, everywhere. Yes, yes, yes. And like, I just, I read everything. And, and I do think, you know, I, I don't want to, I do think part of the reason I went to the school, I ultimately went to the school that I went to is, is just to get more of that. Like I wanted all the ideas, all the, and I, and I, I was experimenting, you know, I thought maybe I'd be a poet. There's a, there's a poet in, inside here somewhere. And so I was always entering. If you, like, feel, if you feel like bursting out into rhyme at any time here, <laughs> just feel free. Uh, I'll, I'll spare you. But I did, I entered every writing contest, local writing contest. Yeah. I won some like, gold key award or something, you know, for Pennsylvania. And so I was always trying to to write. Yeah. Going back to the thing about uh, knowing that you were conservative before knowing you were gay. Mm -hmm. Tell me when you, when you sort of came to that and, and how that all unfolded and how you shared that and how that impacted your thinking. It's all sort of related. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute supports the campus publication. So I, I went to work for a very specific part of ISI, which was the Collegiate Network, which funded conservative and libertarian magazines on campus. And, uh, you know, the, the guy who, who was running at the time came to, came, went to Kenyon. He was an alumni. And so he came, I didn't have a job. It's, you know, I was a senior in college. I had written my honors thesis on relativism and the denigration of the American liberal arts education, because at the time, you know, Alan Bloom was really big, another youth Chicago yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was all over that. And so he was like, oh, we're hiring. And I was 22 and they paid me, you know, $25,000. And I moved to Delaware right across from Joe Biden's house. But this did correspond with me, you know, as a senior in college, this did correspond with me coming out and and for trying to come out. Uh, and I had had sort of my first girlfriend, my senior year of college, like it's secret. I wasn't telling anybody. And then I kind of got into the world. It's funny. There's a big difference, actually, between being a conservative in a bunch of liberal places and being what turns out to be quite a moderate <laughs> conservative in very conservative spaces, which is where I found myself um, in the, at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. It was a very culturally conservative place. A lot of people were uh, extremely religious, uh, and it was just something that actually I wasn't used to as a um, like as an intellect, like the intellectual high level conservatism that had a very like Catholic uh, and conservative influence. Like this was like a new thing. It's but now I under, now I understand it completely. But for then it was the first time. And so and it, and this was also 2002. So we were three years away from the first from Massachusetts being the first state to legalize gay marriage. And so all of this is happening kind of where gay marriage is like at the center of the yeah. cultural conversation. Yeah. I'm at a conservative think tank. I'm sitting in Delaware, kind of alone, my first job. And so I'm not out. But what happens is 
you may remember this, but my uh, an early person who worked at ISI was Christine O'Donnell. Yes. Uh, and Christine O'Donnell was the turned out was the 2010 candidate who ran. Yes. She had yes. the who famous got in trouble with witchcraft. Witch, yeah. I am not a witch commercial. Yes. Yes. So she was the person there who knew the most. She had been on TV and I was very interested in people who talked about politics on TV. Uh, and she taught me how to write a press release uh, to do some of the early comms work that I did. Uh, and uh, and then she ended up <laughs> under circumstances that I won't get into, no longer working at ISI. And uh, and I, I threw my hat in the ring for her job and I got it, which was running community. So I graduated from this little sort of side project of campus stuff to running comms for this organization. And the first thing that they were doing was publishing Rick Santorum's book, It Takes a Family. And so I end up in my years of trying to, both when I'm trying to come out to friends and family and be very much in the closet in my professional life, going on the road with Rick Santorum, who's promoting his book, It Takes a Family, which is essentially about why gay marriage is going to destroy America. It is the response to Hillary Clinton's It Takes a Village. Just on a side point, how did your family and friends react? And was that a hard thing to do? Or Well, you may have heard me earlier say that I was a field hockey and softball player at Kenyon. <laughs> you thought that was a tell, huh? Yeah, no, I, I look, people were great. Uh, and something that I say to people, my parents were great, is um, that you should always give the people in your life the opportunity to be great. Um, and uh, they, they, nobody was anything uh, but supportive. And even I had a teacher at Kenyon who told me something once. I, I had told her I was very scared about going to the conservative think tank and as a senior. And I asked one of my beloved University of Chicago bred political science professors who like she like took me to a reservoir somewhere and like we got Wendy's and she talked it out with me. And she told me. Which is, me, by the way, Wendy's is always the best thing to have when you're talking things out. I'm just saying, but go ahead. It is. It was, it was great. We got some chicken nuggets or, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, we, when I, I explained to her what was going on in my life and uh, I had my first girlfriend and I was just so nervous about this whole thing and what was it going to be like? And she told me something that just turned out to be so true, which is she was like, you know, they probably will be conservative and they might disagree with it personally. She's like, but it will not be a thing. She's like, when you are around in these intellectual sort of set of Republican conservatives, she's like, they're not, they don't care. Like they don't actually care. Uh, and uh, that turned out to be mostly true that, uh, that of course, in the conservative movement, there were tons of people that everybody knew was gay. They didn't talk about it much back then. Uh, but it was plenty an open secret or um, accepted. And, and it was it was something that people would condemn publicly, but privately were fine with. And Santorum is a friend of mine. We worked together at CNN. How did that all go down when you were assigned to travel with him for this book? Yeah. So I would say one of the I don't know if it's a regret, but I never said anything to Rick Santorum about it. Um, and at this point, actually, it was getting pretty tough uh, because Rick Santor, everywhere we would go, there would be gay protesters. And um, I, one of the stories that just really stays with me that I tell sometimes, because I'm hoping this girl will find me someday. But I was at, a, at an event with Rick Santorum um, and I had decided I needed to leave, that I couldn't keep doing this. It was too hard. I was scared all the time that somebody would find out about me. You may remember, actually, his communications director, which goes to my point before, his communications director was viciously outed. At this same time. And I remember when that happened, I remember finding out 
about it was right when his book was getting launched and we were getting a lecture from somebody about how we all needed to keep our cards close to our vests. And I was like flop sweating, thinking that somehow this (laughs) was about me. No one cares about the 23-year-old who's like the junior person promoting the book. You know, no one cares about that person. But his his um, guy named Robert Trainum had been outed and uh, and and that really freaked me out. Uh, but but anyway, so I, I never said anything to him, but I had decided I needed to get out. Um, but I was at an event at ISI and he was holding a book event there. And there was a, a young woman there with her two moms and the, she, was, she was maybe like 12. She was holding a sign that said, my two moms take me bowling. And for whatever reason, that was my line. Like, that was it. I was out. I was out. Um, and I had to, like, I went to to those two. I remember saying to them, like, I'm on your side here. Uh, and I remember Rick Santorum going on The Daily Show. I was with him when he went on The Daily Show. I stood in the wings while he and John Stewart just went toe-to-toe with him, went really hard. It was one of the best defenses of gay marriage I'd heard. I mean, this is 2004, 2005. Oh, man, I remember cheering on John Stewart. And I remember being ashamed that I wasn't being brave enough. And so when I quit, um, because the Santorum stuff was just too much, although he was always very kind kind to me, I'll just say personally, yeah, yeah, he was very, yeah. very nice. I made a promise to myself when I left. I've had two times in my life when I've just completely changed course and and made sort of like an internal promise to myself. And one of them was, I will always be out. I will never not. I will never be in the closet again. And two, I was going to do whatever I could to sort of do like the cosmic uh, makeup for the work that I'd done with Santorum. And I was like, I'm going to go figure out how to advance gay marriage, advance gay rights uh, within the Republican Party. And I'm going to do that affirmatively. And and so when I left, one of the first things I did was figure out how to join log cabin Republicans, young conservatives for the freedom to marry, and ended up doing most of my volunteer political work through those organizations. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. The thing is that it was in that period, you'll remember the uh, election of 2004, and Republicans put anti-marriage propositions on ballots in all these swing states to try and promote uh, high turnout among particularly evangelical voters and religious conservative voters. So, yeah, that, that... must have been uncomfortable. And the whole thing raises, you know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about your philosophy because, you know, Barry Goldwater, <laughs> sort of the granddaddy of modern, genuine conservatism, sponsored a uh, piece of legislation to add employment uh, practices as they relate to gay people. And that would, of course, not be accepted today. But that is sort of a libertarian position. Not sort of. That is the libertarian position. Didn't he say you don't have to be straight to shoot straight? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but you have this fissure in the Republican Party between the libertarian traditions of the Republican Party and the social conservatives and the evangelicals who who are in a completely different place. So I think that's right. And I, I think this is it's 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 hard to explain to people looking back, but I think you have to understand how. My I had read, you know, Freedom to Choose by Milton Friedman. Like I was I was the things that were making me. You're naming all those University of Chicago people. You, you know, you don't have to do this just because you're a fellow. No, 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 no. But it's just I, I, I it's hard to explain to people that like culturally into cu- cultural conservatism, I actually wasn't that plugged into. But I was in the in I was much more into the theory of politics. And so 
for me, it didn't seem at all incompatible. Like I, I, my whole, at the time, it's just like now I'm like, well, if you could just explain to people that actually it's very consistent with the conservative position, gay marriage and, uh, and, you know, getting rid of don't ask, don't tell. Uh, and so for me, I was, I was constantly sort of focused on that interplay, the fact that you could make a case, the conservative case for gay marriage and help people understand uh, why these were not uh, inconsistent. And, and I focused my attention, which is, I think, a little bit of a through line in my story on how you moved conservatives, right? How you moved Republicans on gay marriage, because it didn't matter to me about Democrats. Um, I felt like it was the most important um, to focus on my own tribe. And, and, I, and I took so much heat for it. And I remember being sort of surprised. I couldn't understand why people were so mad that I would identify as a Republican. Uh, and I was because I was like, look, I'm, you need me. Like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. You need Republicans <laughs> in that room making this case. But man, was the hate mail. And, and it was and it tell you what, it came from both sides. Either Republicans hated you because you were gay or gay people hated you for being a Republican. And you just had to learn to sit in your space and deal with the fact that a lot of people were going to be mad at you. Well, what do you make? today of, you know, there's another wave, much like 2004, you see this wave of legislation and legislate uh, Republican legislatures across the country. You saw what Governor DeSantis has done in Florida with this don't say gay uh, bill. So it feels like, even though, I, you know, Trump never really engaged in the issue very much, but it feels like Republicans uh, maybe now more than ever see this as a hot button, at least within the Republican Party to organize this uh, this sort of social cons socially conservative evangelical base. Yeah, it's really interesting because I did think, perhaps a little bit naively, although I, I do think we won the conversation on gay rights, gay marriage. And that, you have to, that has to be really clear, that's not what's happening right now. What it is, is it's like a, it's like a side door into the hatred, right? Which is under the guise of something different. The, the anti-LGBT bills, that are coming through now are really this it's it's it might as well be CRT or Dr. Seuss or everything else. It's all yes. wrapped up in like a woke culture war yeah, battle right. thing where lots of people who are fine with gay marriage think, including some people that I'm still close to who are like big anti-Trumpers will be like, well, but because the frame they've put is, well, why would you need to tell a kindergartner about gay people or gay marriage or certainly, and they lean hard on the transgender side because people are much, you know, still- They're, they don't they're like much, to see their kid competing against a, a woman who, who, who they think has an undue advantage. That and also it's the transgender issue is still so confusing to people where the gay marriage thing got litigated and people understand it now. It's like it's easier to scare people with the unknown and the transgender issues is just still yeah. a lot more unknown to people. But there's also I mean, how old is your you, you're married and you have a child? How old is your, how old's your uh... I have two kids. They are five and three, two boys. So they'd fall under the provisions of a law like that. And, and they have two moms. Certainly that question could come up. Oh, yeah. I wrote a Washington Post piece about this. You know, I, I go into my kid's classroom uh, now, of course, we're in the uh, the like the, the, a blue a blue bubble. But you know, you you go into my kids' classroom. There's pictures of us all over the place. Whether it's what the kids have drawn, you know, and it's like you look like little thumb people, and the kids <laughs> will tell you like, "That's my mama. That's my mommy." Uh, and and but there's also pictures. The school solicits pictures because I don't know if you've met a five year old, but five year olds have a very limited scope on the world, and so their yeah. families loom pretty large in their lives, and so that's yes. mostly what they talk about. Um, and, and so the idea that a teacher 
wouldn't be able to answer a question. I, it's going to be perfectly reasonable that the kids in the class are going to say, why does, you know, Billy have two moms? Yeah. Uh, or or why does someone have, uh, you know, I don't I don't know, just one yeah. mom or dad, like whatever. These questions or come up. Two and dads, for, a, yeah. for a teacher to not be able to say, well, some people have two moms, some people have two dads, some people have a mom and a dad, and all families are great, and we all love each other, that's the most important. You know, like whatever it is that a kindergarten teacher says to kids when they ask, and by the way, there's tons of complicated, there's going to ask a lot of weird anatomy questions and like all kinds of crazy stuff little kids ask. And so this idea of, of putting it on the teacher so that they would be liable for a crime that it, somebody could could rat them out uh, and they could be sued uh, for engaging in that level of conversation. It doesn't it just doesn't live in reality. And, you know, I'll just add that conservatives used to hate uh, vaguely written laws like this that would have all these unintended consequences. But of course, this is the intended consequence of the, these laws. That's what I mean. It's like the side door into because for people who want to hate gay people, it gives them a nice way to do it and erase them from the conversation. But for people who want to feel like they don't, it gives them enough cover of like, yeah, but we don't need to be talking to kindergartners about this. Uh, we shouldn't be talking about sex, which, again, is this kind of pernicious. It's not talking about people about sex. It's talking to people about families. Yes, you're right that this is just one of a whole bunch of strategies on the part of the Republican Party. I mean, I've always felt, you know, when we ran in tw uh, 2008 uh, and 2012, we spoke about the most broad-based issues we could that touched the most people about economics, uh, you know, uh, about, you know, healthcare, about things that really were the day-to-day -day things that were t the people were talking about around the kitchen table. And we tried to steer around sort of divisive cultural issues because they didn't benefit us. And we were trying to unite and build the biggest base possible, not galvanize, not galvanize just one one base or one, one you know so that is not the strategy of the of the republican party right now no um although i gotta say so it wasn't that i mean i'm i'm not gonna tell you about barack obama but i just want to say that as a as a youngish as 28 a 28 year old uh republican who at that point was living in dc working still um on republican policy things i disagreed with with obama on some of his policy prescriptions but his when he, he had a culturally talked, conservative uh, his culture, message, the, yeah. The way that he did things culturally really resonated. And yeah, I yeah, still no, you're have, absolutely right about that. The, the, I, I mean, I remember listening to like, we've because we've got gay friends in the red states and we've got so-and-so in the blue states. And that attempt to bring people together and to talk about us all as the United States and to yeah. use his own personal story to the end of making, you know, people feel like he was out to, to bring us all together and make us all one yes. people. That is gone from politics right now. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, I think that, you know, I listened to your podcast with uh, my, my, my buddy and, and podcast partner uh, over there on Hacks on Tap, uh, Robert Gibbs, talking about, you know, Biden running as a uniter and uh, the country being divided. Uh, but Obama, people missed that in 2008. You know, his message was a very unifying message. He really ran against the sort of caricaturing of of one party or the other party. And you sort of ran on this platform that let's 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 do what makes sense. You know, and he ran on a platform of personal responsibility, uh, the words that you used earlier. In a sense, he was greeted with uh Mitch McConnell did an interview that was really interesting in uh, 2010. 
in which he basically said, look, if we went along, if we were part of this, people would say, well, they've figured it out. And basically what he's saying is we would be dead. That's not how we get back into power by having this kumbaya moment where Republicans and Democrats work together. And, you know, I, I think that that turned out to be a shrewd strategy for him because it was his path back to power. I want to talk more about this moment that we're in, but I do want to follow your story because you went to work for Berman and Company, which is a public affairs firm in Washington. You worked there for, what, 14, 15 years? 15 years. Yeah, it was a long yeah. time. And it was incredibly formative. And th this guy, uh, he was known as Dr. Evil uh, to his uh, friends and, and detractors. Um, yes. <laughs> and we did, it was funny. It's funny to think about the old cultural battles because a lot of it was around like the food police, you know, yes. like the Center for Consumer Freedom. I mean, just stuff that now is so far off the radar. But he was, you know, a guy who'd been around Washington for a long time. Uh, Republican who understood these policy fights and was just a real messaging uh, guru. And so I learned a ton from him about communications. And I brought most of his theories uh, to bear as we've sort of gone against Trump here. I want to talk about that and the techniques because it's actually related to your uh, podcast as well. But you guys created a whole bunch of organizations with uh, sort of kind of anodyne, Center for Consumer Freedom, Center for Union Facts, the Employment Policies Institute, and so on. And you ran public affairs campaigns basically on the industry side to beat back soft drink, sugar mandates, and, and things like that. I mean, consistent with less regulation philosophy, but also in the, in the, to the betterment of the bottom line for your clients. And I'm not, I ran, I, ran a public affairs firm for a while myself. So, although they did better when I left, but, um, <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not disparaging it, but it is interesting because you were running campaigns, but not for candidates. This is true. It's actually, um, and it's a, I, I never did the, the most of the political work that I did was with log cabin Republicans. Um, you know, that was the, where we endorsed, you know, candidates who Republicans who were more, uh, gay friendly, yeah, my 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 background is really in the policy side and it was kind of a pro business. Um I wasn't it wasn't no regulation, but it was overzealous regulation. Yes. I would I would frame it that way. Yeah, we could probably quibble over what what's overzealous and what's you know not what? overzealous, think, but that's that probably within the parameters of where should. politics should be. I mean, I think grown people can make a decision about how big the soda they want to drink is. And I think that setting uh, mandates around that is, is silly. But, that, well, but that, and they're going to keep growing if they take those big gulps. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> sure. And you know what? I would file that under their problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear you. But this is this is where, you know, I was in a pretty comfortable space there uh, policy wise. Like I, I had sort of and I had gone there in part because I was done. I wanted no social issues. I just wanted to, you know, uh, but there there did come a point while I was working there when I was working there when Trump got elected and it became I suddenly found myself going into rooms with all these sad Republicans like Bill Kristol trying to figure out, you know, what were we going to do about Trump? And over time, um, it became untenable, even though I was uh, I'd been there my entire for and I was I was actually I was sort of like the next in line. I, you know, I was I was going to that was what I was going to do was probably bad for business when one of your senior people is leading the revolt against the parties uh, to, against the president and urging impeachment. 
That's right. And it, but if he got angry phone calls about me, he really didn't tell me too much. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was nothing but generous and kind when I went out on my own with some of my team and, and started a bunch of new organizations, not dissimilar. I, I set up my yeah. own, you know, non, I, I, I learned, I learned, I set up my own C4s and took it said, you know, hey, we're going to plant the flag here. We're going to find all the disaffected Republicans and we're going to go fight Trump. Tell me what you did. I know you, you, you ran a really sophisticated series of campaigns in various places, used a variety of techniques. Tell me what impact you feel that you had in the 2020 election. Yeah, so in 2020, we ran a really large campaign, more than $40 million uh, total between the PAC uh, and the C4 that, that did um, Republican voters against Trump. And, and here's we had started with Republicans for the Rule of Law was the first project that we had. Uh, and it was around the Mueller investigation, protecting it from political interference. And we were running a bunch of ads in early days. This is before anyone had ever heard of something, you know, the Lincoln Project wasn't around or anything. And so we were kind of the first group that were really, we were coming out with ads that were just pounding on on Trump. And they would go super viral on Twitter. Uh, but we were testing them the whole time, doing focus groups, testing them with swing voters, and they weren't really moving the needle. Yeah, and this can- is so interesting. Let me interrupt you for a second, because I've been greatly amused by the Lincoln Project advertising. I just can't imagine any of it moving someone who was a swing voter who was sort of on the fence and who was trying to work their way through these issues because they were, they're so caustic as to be almost self-impeaching. I mean, I'm not going to comment on the Lincoln Project one way or the other. I will say that. Well, we how about see, on the how about on the principle? But on the but on the principle, like I saw it happen. We were running ads that were beating them up, and the swing voters they had a total backlash effect. Swing voters thought they were political. They thought it was just more people kind of out to get Trump. You know, even people who I was testing them all the time with Trump voters who rated him as doing a very bad job, and it just wasn't working. And I could see the chasm of difference between going viral on Twitter. An actual persuasion effect. Yeah. So I was like, different world, different world. I was like, we need a different strategy. And so we started experimenting. I had seen a campaign that MoveOn.org had done actually, where they were doing it for Democrats, endorsing Democrats, but they just found regular people to like make little selfie videos talking about why they were supporting yeah. a given candidate. And they were talking about how that tested really well because it was and almost like the grainier and the more just authentic, it seemed. Authentic is the key word here. Yes, yes, yes. That that was the thing that had the deep persuasion value. And I started thinking, well, now, you know, by this point in in starting Defending Democracy Together with Bill and everybody, we had had a huge list. Like we were we were acquiring all these disaffected Republicans. And so I said, I wonder if we asked them to make a video if they would. And so we started and we would do it one by one. We would like go out to people who we, you know, we were engaging with and we're talking to and say, would you make one of these videos? And it actually started out pretty hard. Um, but the big break that we got was COVID. Uh, and when COVID hit, it drove people indoors. Everybody was suddenly using Zoom. And so we would have these Zoom conversations and we could just pin the Zoom. And if somebody, some dad talking about his two daughters and like, how am I going to explain to my daughters about this? I'm a Christian. How am I going to explain to my daughters about this horrible man and the things that he says? And then we would send them the video and say, hey, can we use this? <laughs> and, um, and then once we had a hundred of those, we launched Republican voters against Trump with all these testimonials and people immediately were like, oh, I see what you're doing. And then they just started sending them to us. And like lots of them actually did go viral because they were funny. They would be like a dude sitting on the bleachers with no shirt on smoking a cigarette being like, you know, man, I voted for Trump at 16 because I thought he was going to be different, but he's the worst and I'm not voting for him again. And, you know, and he's like, 
Whatever. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I mean, the, the brilliance of it is in a time when people are so fundamentally skeptical about information they're getting and so suspicious about the sources of it, uh, when you can create media that, uh, that is authentic and gives people a sense that, hey, I'm not alone. I may be thinking about voting for a Democrat, which I haven't done before. But I'm going to, you know, but there are a lot of other people who are saying the same things I'm thinking. So maybe there's more to it. I did a lot of uh, campaigns before Obama for African-Americans running in f for the first time in 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 uh, majority white areas. And I, what I found was at that time, you know, newspaper endorsements were so much more important for my candidates because what it said to people who were doing something they had never done before, voting for someone of color, well... It must be okay. They're, I mean, if they're endorsing him, it must be okay. But now I think today, especially because people are used to getting information from their friends on Facebook, seeing people like them, I think that's a very effective tactic. So what did it produce? So it produced over a thousand of these testimonials. And then we tested them for their highest persuasion value. We found a bunch of interesting things out. For example, Southern accent people would be much more likely to be persuaded by somebody with a Southern accent or like a guy who said he was a firefighter and had a mustache. Like the more they looked like people's idea of a stereotypic Republican or sounded like that, the more persuasive they were. And so all we did, we figured out, okay, where do we know our, where do we know our persuadable voters are? And there's basically the suburban and exurban rings outside of metropolitan areas, right? The places where it purples up. Uh, and that's where we focused our targeting. And that was the whole campaign. It was really straightforward and basic, but it combines a couple of my favorite. Um, you just you just said something that is deeply part of my persuasion philosophy or my communications philosophy. One is I believe that the messenger is equally, if not more important than the message. Two, it's all about permission structures. I've heard you tell that story about the papers and it's like, that's it. It is the is giving people permission to do this thing that they haven't done before. And three, it is who do people trust? And with the collapse of trust, the number one people thing, uh, who people say they trust is people like them. And yes. so that's what we had to go find. People like them who could create the permission structure by being authentic messengers on it. And that was the ball game. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. My mom uh, started her life as a, a professional life as a journalist. And when that dried up, she started doing interviews. This was in the 1950s for advertising agencies to talk one-on-one -on -one with consumers about their attitudes. And this led to her getting being one of the early people doing focus groups. And she ended up being the qualitative director for an advertising agency. But I grew up with this stuff. And so, uh, and I really believe in it. And all through my political career, I thought I learned as much or more from focus groups as I did from any poll. Because focus groups are a place where people uh, tell you in their own words what they're thinking. You don't have to guess and then create these questions for them to answer um, they tell you what's on their mind. And if you get the, if they're constructed properly, they're in a group of people, like-minded people. And so they feel free to unburden themselves and share their most intimate thoughts about what's going on in their lives and in the life of the community. And I know you're a big aficionado of those 
I'm creeping up to your podcast here, but <laughs> but talk to me about that. And I mean, because they're so revelatory, aren't they? They are. And I got to tell you, what happened was when I, after I'd met Bill Crystal and we launched our organization, you know, we, we, we were had this cockamamie idea that maybe you could primary Donald Trump uh, going into 2024. And, uh, you know, you, you may remember Larry Hogan came perilously close to doing it and then ultimately demurred. Yes. But uh, we, we started. 2024 or 2020. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant 2020. Back in. You're, back you're, in this you're, was, you're, yeah, we'll I'm get already, to 2024. I'm already yeah. up there. Yeah. No, yes. no, no. Sorry. Back in 2020. This is so this is back in 2018 when we were thinking about 2020. Could we, could yeah. we primary him? And it occurred to me. When even when Trump got elected, I was like, something I've been spending too many, too much time in think tanks. It goes back to when I say there was two times in my life where I realized I like really misunderstood a situation and I was doing it wrong. This was the second one, which was I had not seen what was going on with the Republican Party. I did not understand how dark um, things had gotten. And I, I wanted, so the first thing I did was start doing focus groups to just listen to Trump voters and be like, why did you vote for this guy? Um, and what they told me. Uh, I don't want I won't go through the whole thing. But the basic the basic thing was I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I voted against Hillary Clinton. It's the negative polarization that we hear so much about in political science. And that was very much on display. But it was like it was it was so eye opening that like now I'm addicted to them. Like if I, and I'm addicted to the information because here's the thing. Uh, people sometimes think they they are dismissive about focus groups because they're like, what can 10 people tell you on anything sitting in a room? And that might be right if you just ask 10 people, want, you know, about one time. But if you do Or treat it like a poll, you yeah, know, treat it which like a sometimes poll. people do, which is a mistake. It's a mistake. The, the polls can tell you roughly where things are, but the focus groups will tell you the why. It'll tell yes. you why are people doing this. And you hear, I, and so, so, and we do them almost weekly now. So yes. you can also, you can track people over time. I could see how Trump changed Republican voters. Um, there was a symbiotic relationship where the voters had had allowed him in, but now he was actively working on them, chipping away at any sense of decorum, any to the point where now they had an appetite. They wanted the chaos. They craved uh, the battling and what they first sort of did holding their nose. Now they wanted. You know, on this point, it strikes me. And I think I had Maria Ressa on our podcast last week, and it strikes me that the same incentives that drive the social media platforms to do what they do are true for politicians as well. It's just the social media platforms are trying to make money and the politicians are trying to get power and votes. But they both have the same inspiration, which is that outrage, anger attracts people. And we have a perverse sense of incentives in our media media and political ecosystem now that splinter us apart in ways that are awful and that empower demagogues. Yeah, I heard Marissa Ressa at at that disinformation conference that you hosted, and she was incredible when she spoke. But I I was sitting there thinking exactly this point. And she said that thing. She said she talked about the devil and the angel on your on your shoulder. And I think about this all the time in terms of people have listen to the focus groups. People people are so funny. If you if you ask people about how they think things are going in the country, they'll say to you, man, I don't know, people seem really angry and they're so bad at each other and we're so far apart and I just hate that so much. And that same person 10 minutes later will tell you what an absolute jackass, you know, their political opponent is and how they're such a scumbag and they hate them. And like yeah. they, people, people carry those contradictions in them, right? And it is leadership. Leadership draws out 
It can draw out the best versions of us or it can draw out the worst versions of us. And Donald Trump is a living, breathing manifestation of somebody who wants to just yank out everything that is bad and divisive and angry in all of us and play on those worst impulses. Well, and give him this credit. He never pretended to be anything else. He never pretended to be the president of the entire United States. He was the president of his base. Right. And he wanted to rally his base against the other base. And he's, you know, you talk about the devil and the angel that Maria Ressa talked about. Trump basically, he gave a permission structure to people to entertain their worst instincts, that it's okay to hate. It's okay to uh, think the worst of your neighbor. It's okay to harbor all these, you know, that's okay. And to, and the people who tell you it's not okay are politically correct. And, you know, it's disturbing. So I listened to your podcast with Robert, as I said. It was very interesting with swing voters, Democratic voters. Well, first, before I ask you that, I should say, you don't call yourself a Republican anymore. I don't know. People ask me this. I mean, I've been a Republican my entire life. There's, have you ever seen Office Space? There's the guy, John Bolton, and he's like, why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks. Uh, you know, like I just, there's part of me that, that is like, I was here first. And then there's this other part of me that is aware that the fact is that the, I said I was a conservative in a recent Washington Post column. Comments were just savaging. And like, the fact is the colloquial understanding now is Trump. And so I don't know how to call myself, uh, you know, I'm a conservative in the context of if anybody would like to read the actual definitions of believing in limited government and personal responsibility, I, it still applies. However, it is so far from our current cultural understanding that it's sort of, uh, it's a misnomer or feels like a misnomer to say it. Yeah. The irony I was thinking about earlier when you were speaking is that the uh, Republican party today is a is against a big government and the intrusion of government in our lives except in the most intimate elements of our lives you know on and and it's such such a contradiction although you know i'm frightened i i was reading today you may have seen the story in the post about the movement now to ban books from libraries this is terribly frightening well, this is, to be fair, like the Republican Party, when you say it's it's not just on this point that they're completely hypocritical, like the Republican Party now is a is almost an inversion of what I thought I was interested in when I decided I was a Republican when I was, you know, 19 years old. Um, it no longer cares about character. In fact, the opposite. Uh, it no longer seems to care about personal responsibility. Uh, I mean, look at the, the like COVID. Uh, there's just there's a million ways in which I could tell you that this party no longer believes in any of the things that it purported to believe in. And, and well, Tucker's love affair with well, uh, Putin is an exactly, example of it. Exactly. Perfect example. Yeah. Where do you think that we are at right now? You just did these focus groups. I listened to them and you and Robert disagreed on one point. You said, and I tend to agree with you, that I think you both agree that Trump, if he runs, is likely to be the nominee. I think he's running, don't you? I do. I do think he's running. And I actually, I don't know how it's, possible. It, it feels like a bad dream, but I think the chances of us rerunning the 2020 election with these two guys uh, just who are already pretty old, even older, is looking more and more plausible. Um, and and I mean, I don't know what's going to happen on the Dem side, but uh, but yeah, no, I think I think Trump's going to run. And he's certainly telling everybody he is like I talked to a lot of Republicans who hear it from him uh, or people adjacent to him that he has every expectation that he's going to do it. 
Um, and look, I do the focus groups all the time. I talk to Trump voters. There's a bunch of people in my orbit uh, who are smart people who have their magnifying glasses out. They're looking at the Kemp-Purdue race, and they're trying to use that as some reason to say that Trump is losing his grip on the party. I don't believe that for one second. I mean, if you just look at this field of candidates in 2022, you got Kerry Lakes and your Josh Mandels and your J.D. Vances. I mean, yeah. every every secretary of state. Like, right. It's Trump's candidate and everybody who wants to be like Trump or purports to be like Trump. I mean, he's infected the whole field. The whole field. It's mini MAGA, 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 MAGA. They're all just different varying shades of MAGA. They're different varying shades of Stop the Steal. The- Kay Ivey's got an ad out questioning the results of the election. Like, he's he's moved the Overton window on what it means to be a Republican, which is that we're just insane people who say that the election was stolen over and over again. And that's 70, what we're looking 70% at. of Republicans believe that. Which is extraordinary. And, you know, in a democracy, if people, if, if large numbers of people doubt the legitimacy of an election, I mean, that is way down the road to disaster. It is. The, people people, it, it, people sort of dismiss it. I have a piece in The Atlantic today, actually, about the big lie and why it persists based on the focus groups. And the fact is, like, a lot of it's not that they hold it so strongly, like to some degree, it's a partisan or tribal pose. You know, all my friends say it's stolen. So I say it's stolen, too. When 70 percent of a political party thinks that, you know, Democrats are happy to steal an election, what does that do to polarization? What does it do to social trust? What does it do to confidence in our elections going forward? I mean, it is it is a catastrophic problem to have such a, you know, 30 percent of the population think that if their candidate doesn't win, that it was stolen. Yeah. So looking forward to 2024. Well, we should do 2022. I mean, I've been very candid on the other podcast about my view on this, which is I mean, every index, if you were a doctor and you looked at this chart, you'd say this patient is is doomed, <laughs> you know, because all the indices are such that president's approval rating is around down around 40. The direction of the country, you know, through, uh, only a quarter of the people think the country's in the right direction. You and your focus groups, I think, found the fundamental uh, issue, which is people think things are out of control. They feel like there's a things are chaotic. And unfortunately, because I think uh, a lot of it is unfair and a lot of it has to do with performance, but they don't see Biden as in command. Yeah, and that's I a mean, caustic mix. That's I think that's right. The word that I, I use is precarious. People feel like we're in a precarious place where they think COVID can resurge and kind of shut things down at any minute again, which can wreak havoc on the economy. They're worried about World War III breaking out. Um, you know, the worried about runaway inflation. And so people have this like they're, they're, they're nervous, they're afraid all the time. And they also I think it's a lot of this isn't Joe Biden's fault in the sense that what people wanted was for Donald Trump to go away and things to get better and go back to normal. And just the fact that they didn't is just the problem. And it's just the environment uh, that we're swimming in. Um, that being said, as as bad as the environment is, and I think it's terrible and I think nobody should blanch or, or nobody should <laughs> should shy away from saying that. One of the things that, and I'll I'll circle back to my old friend Christine O'Donnell here. You will remember the 2010 midterms. They were a tough, they're a tough time. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but still have the tire tracks <laughs> on my butt, actually. So. <laughs> but the what what happened? Republicans put up a bunch of crazy candidates, and they lost in some of those. Sharon Angle was yes, another one. Democrats yeah. were able to hold on to those Senate seats. Well, the good news for Democrats is Republicans have actually happen again. candidates like that all over the map. And so I think some of it is. Can Democrats execute uh, a prosecutorial case against these individual candidates who they will tie themselves to Trump? Like, you don't have to think about, you know, whoa, should we tie him to Trump or not? Do Like, Trump's going to inject himself in right, these races. He's going to be yeah. all over it. And I think hammering them on that with swing voters, I think the 
the bigger struggle is actually on the enthusiasm side around turnout, because what I see the differential, there's a real enthusiasm gap between Republicans who, because they think the election was stolen, uh, are ready to go out and vote for any living, breathing Republican and Democrats who are like, I don't know, student debt's not forgiven yet and the well, environment's not saved. Yeah. And, um, and they're kind of blah. And I think that's the bigger problem. But I do think there's real room for swing voters to get persuaded around individual candidates. Yeah. The turnout issue is a huge one, which is why the incumbent party almost always loses in midterms, even in good years. That's a massive problem. Okay, 2024, we both agreed. If Trump runs, he probably wins, despite all of these Trump wannabes out there and a few people who say they're going to be something different. He's still got a very 80, 80 something percent approval rating among Republicans. Does he win? You, you and Robert seem to disagree on this. But say it's a Biden-Trump race. I, I do. I, so I don't know. I mean, look, I just think that, look, everybody's going to talk about voter suppression and the vote, new voting laws. And I'm just saying that I think that Trump could win in an environment like this fair and square. I think that there's what I what I really want to guard against is there's a I've, I've seen a couple people suggest the idea that it's a good news if Donald Trump runs again, because that's who you can beat, um, where it seems like people think Ron DeSantis would be harder to beat. There may be, it may be sort of true, but like you do not roll the dice on that ever. And like the, and, and so, um, I, I well, just, let don't, me just yeah. say too, we don't know. Everybody can say Ron DeSantis and name other people. But I said a long time ago that presidential races are like MRIs for the soul and people find out who you are. And DeSantis hasn't been through that mix master yet, as have, uh, and neither have anybody else. I mean, people know what they're getting in Trump. Everything's baked in the cake, even if he, you know, I think there are there's a portion of Republicans who would vote for him even if he were indicted because they'd say sure. well, this is just a political indictment. So anyway, you, you were winding up to the Democratic side of the equation. Well, I was just winding up to the idea that, look, if there's one thing I hear from there's there's a big differential in the focus groups on the Republican ones. More than half of every focus group that I do of Trump voters wants Trump to run again. And if they don't, it's not because they don't like him. It's just that they're like, eh, yeah, they're, I don't know. They he's, whatever. Too, too dangerous. Nobody, yeah. That's right. Too dangerous. He might not he win. He might not win. He might not yeah. win. On the Dem side, almost nobody thinks Joe Biden should run again. He's too old. They don't think he's, and like this idea, uh, and, and look, I, I don't, I don't want to bag on Joe Biden. I think he's probably doing, but he did, he did an admirable thing, but his one job really was to unseat Trump. Yes. He's, he's an old guy. And and it and he reads like an old like he sounds like an old guy. And you are not going to convince, I think, the country to vote for him again. And I just hear people all the time being like, well, Joe Biden's just going to have to do it again. And I think that he had a real break with covid. He did not have to be out there. And I think that that if he does, uh, we're in a different environment and people should not want to invite that circumstance. Yeah. Well, one of the questions is and I've raised it elsewhere. Will he say what he's going to do in time to allow others to put a campaign together? Because his habit has been to make these decisions late. And if he does, that creates a really difficult set of circumstances for almost any other candidate to jump in. Let, let me ask you, what would it mean? And this is a good place to end, although it's not the most upbeat place to end. But what do you think the uh, next four years would be like if Trump did win re-election? I mean, Mike Flynn, Sidney Powell. Sidney Powell is, what is she, attorney general? I mean, just uh, imagine the cabinet. And look, he was always to some degree, at least moderately tethered by the uh, the people that were with him had like 
three tenths of normality in them of things that you know that where where he was constrained he was constrained by the up by an election just imagine donald trump with no constraints and zero of the no mattises around him and only and and this is like i'm watching republicans wind up for this they are winding they're they're thinking about who's going to be his vp there is an active like sub race right now for who his vp is i just no mike pence to constrain things to make sure that an election doesn't get overturned and so I think, look, I think Donald Trump running for us and winning a second term is a catastrophic event for democracy. Look how dangerous the world is right now. Look how dangerous the world is. We cannot have a Putin loving just clown in the White House again. I, I can't imagine if he was president right now. I'm 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 very afraid. You're right. It's not an upbeat. I have I don't have an upbeat way to end this. Well, I do. If you want to follow really, really trenchant commentary, read the bulwark, which uh, Sarah is the uh, publishes and and listen to the focus group her wonderful podcast and look for her writings here and there elsewhere because you you really are an incisive commentator and participant frankly in this um, in this great pageant of democracy <laughs> well thanks so, so much for having me this was such a pleasure great to be with you and thank you for helping mentor young people at the institute of politics this spring it's uh, it's a treat to have you i love it what a wonderful thing to do Good to see you. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.